0: 1510 WMEX Quincy Boston and 101.1 FM W266DQ. Quincy. WMEX Quincy Boston. Streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all new WMEX. WMEX Boston. They and all night, drinking wine, spooty ooty, drinking wine. Wine, spooky, spooky, drinking wine. That's right, it's time for Wine by Design with Len here on 1510 WMEX. Len is a certified wine educator with over 30 years in the wine industry and is one of the newest WMEX good guys. Taking your questions at 781 834 9639. And online at WMEX at gmail.com. Here's your host, Len Prasuti. Well, thank you so much, Ben, and welcome everyone. Um, I want to start tonight. By the way, we have a full plate, <laughs> to put it mildly. Man, a lot of a lot of things to discuss today. But did want to go over as usual and start with a listener's question and wanted to remind you that you can email your questions to me besides calling in at lenwmex at gmail.com or lenwmex at gmail.com. We also have podcasts up. They're uh, running and if you missed a past episode, you can catch up. Those are available at wmexboston.com or you can search Wine by Design on your favorite platform gotta admit as i mentioned i love your questions and i had a great one from a listener frankie it's kind of neat in that he shared his wine drinking history with me before he asked this question he mentioned that he drank pretty much exclusively boone's farm apple wine in his 20s which led to him not drinking wine for over 25 years but anyway He's been listening to the show and the talk about food and wine combinations and all that, and he's ready to dive back in. He has this event coming up. It's a multi-day event where he's going to be meeting with a lot of friends, and I guess everyone's bringing bottles. And what he wanted to have selections for specifically where he, was he knows that there's going to be a pasta with a red sauce there, and he also wanted some wines later that would work with uh, just cheese and crackers that you can eat almost any time. Well, the first one is easy for me. Um, We've talked about it before. When you're matching wines with a red sauce, a tomato sauce, because of the high acidity in the tomatoes, you want to kind of match that in the acidity of the wine. And that kind of magic happens where when you put the two together, acidity cancels acidity. So the sauce seems richer and more complex, like you've cooked it longer, better. And the wine itself, that might have been one step up from battery acid, now all of a sudden tastes velvety and smooth. So we are going to go to a classic Chianti. One of our absolute favorites is Castello d'Abola. It's a Chianti Classico. It, however, way way over delivers at the price point. It's well under $20, and you can actually find it on sale sometime in its uh, teens. It's just got a lot more complexity and depth and a lot more going on that you would expect anywhere near that price point. So that would be the first one if you're looking to nail the match. Now, on the other hand, sometimes, you know, you you want something, a, a a wine on trainer wheels, perhaps, you know, something that might be just a little bit easier, not quite that high in acidity. And there's a Montepulciano d'Abruzzo out there called Barba. They do a Cole Marino that sells for about $12 and will work as well. It's softer, so it's not going to be that, you know, sparks flying kind of match that the Chianti would be, but a nice alternative if you want something a little simpler to start out with, or if you want to try a couple of different bottles. The other one I would mention is, talk about wines over delivering. I'm a huge Allegrini fan. I've been there. I've, I've met the owners. They're just wonderful people. And they do this special bottling that's called Plazzo della Torre. It's a Valpolicella by Allegrini. Now, you can get that at around the $20 range. And my God, that, talk about overing, over-delivering. It's just got so much going on there, so much depth and complexity and a nice cherry with some plums in there and everything else at a really nice long finish. So there are my recommendations for the red sauce. Now, cheese and crackers, you know, there are a lot of different things that fit the bill there. But if I had to recommend just a couple, probably I would start off with some bubbles. And there's a really nice Italian Prosecco to keep the theme going with the red sauce called La Marca. Really widely available, pretty much everywhere. The thing I love about Prosecco and it makes it so much fun and so approachable, it's not bone dry, but it's definitely not sweet. It just has this really soft kind of gentle peachy note to it that is just a ton of fun and that would be really nice with the uh, just the cheese and crackers or just having a sip of wine on its own but the other one that would actually work pretty well with the cheese in terms of a little bit more acidity there it's going to cut through the fat of the cheese and all that and still have a little touch of fruitiness Because, hey, man, if you haven't been drinking wine for 25 plus years, we want to ease you into this slowly. This wine that I'm thinking of is called the Pine Ridge Chenin Blanc Viognier. And it's 80% Chenin Blanc, which is a high acid grape, but it's balanced off by 20% of Viognier, which Viognier is just a big, luscious, full-bodied, rich, powerful wine. And it sometimes can be a little bit low in acidity. But here, with the Shannon blended in, it's perfect. It's, again, just it's not bone, bone dry, but the acid levels are there. So it's nice, bright, crisp, and refreshing. And I think it's one that would appeal to just about anyone. Now, the other way to go is, you know, we've talked about Pinot Grigio before. And I've mentioned the Pinty, which is kind of our day-in, day-out favorite. Um, and certainly, you could go in that direction. But I did mention to him, and he did contact me again if he wanted anything else, you know, if he had any other suggestions in terms of like dryness levels or country they wanted to come from. Uh, there's a, a ton of different choices there. Now, before we jump in on uh, some of the topics that we're going to talk about, I wanted to relate to you a couple things I experienced this past week that I th- thought were worth repeating to you. Now, the first one had to do, we've talked about aeration before and the tremendous difference giving wine enough air can make. Um, and I stood upright, because I knew it was going to decant it off sediment, At 2008 Sessetti Livio Pertamale Brunello di Montalcino. So this is good wine here, and I don't want to get it wrong. And we've talked about the Aeration times can vary pretty dramatically. so I went to one of these kind of chat websites where people talk about their recent experiences with wine and it's it's a huge base so you get pretty much you can hear from people that have had anything usually within the past few months and sometimes with even in the past week. So I paid attention to what everybody said and said, you know it sounds like it's going to need about three hours air. So decanted it three hours before we planned on sitting down to eat. Turns out we sat down about three and a half hours after the decant. It was lovely at that point, but my God, at when it hit that four-hour mark, it was gorgeous. I mean, all the resolution had taken place, and it was just a fantastic wine-drinking experience. But now I'm thinking, because when I was looking up the wine, I'm seeing these ratings in addition to people talking about you know how they handled the wine and when they drank it and and all that they often discuss how much air they're going to give the wine and here I, there was a big difference in not only that aeration which i again determined to be around 3 hours but in the ratings and it was mystifying to me that a Bunch of people in this online chat that have had the wine within the past year gave it an 89 rating. Now, 89 is what people tend to give wine when eh, eh, yeah, it's kind of disappointing. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't even remotely what I expected it to be. So I went back and reread all of the reviews there, and it turns out that every time someone mentioned anything about letting the wine breathe or decanting or anything of that sort, they gave the wine a 94-95 point rating, which is like, wow, this is great. And the 89 ratings came from people that didn't even mention that they decanted it in advance or anything like that. And the thought that occurred to me is, This wine's not inexpensive. You want to buy a bottle today, we're talking about $80 to $90 a bottle. So you're going to spend that kind of money, age the wine in your cellar for about 15 years, and not go to the trouble of giving it enough air to make it sing? My God, what a sin. The other thing I experienced with breathing, which is totally in the opposite end, was with a very simple wine. We were enjoying a uh, 2022 Jadot Beaujolais Village. Very simple, fruity. Uh, you know, my wife Andrea mentioned, "Oh man, this place almost like Welch's grapefruit, Welch's grape juice." Excuse me. Um, and we hadn't anything that tasted that fruit-driven in a long time without anything else apparently happening. So we thought, eh, you know, it's an inexpensive bottle. We were cooking and uh, just said, "Well, we'll we'll give it a chance and try it." About 20 minutes later, it was like a different wine. And all this depth appeared seemingly out of nowhere. And it it was amazing in that it improved so dramatically with just that 20 minutes of air. So some of the wines that don't need air, even if you give them a little bit, it's going to make a difference. Now, the only other thing I did want to mention was since we talked so much about wine and food and about how you know you're you're choosing the the wine for the food because the the food could hurt the wine and there could be a bad interaction there or it could be good you know it could work in either direction i've had an experience where you know we like to support local businesses and a restaurant that we frequent started adding pasta dishes so we said hey you know we'll give it a chance um this Dish had an incredibly long name that I have to pesto da 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 da, da and with da 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 um, I I can't really remember it. But turns out the dish just wasn't very good. It was really it was just some chopped fresh herbs. They use so much oregano that that's pretty much all you could taste. And there's just some fresh lemon there. But oh my god, do. Quote Huey Lewis in the news in one of his songs, sometimes bad is bad. Now, we were drinking a good Gavi with it, you know, wine from the Piedmont, nice acid, uh, something's medium bodied, we thought would would work well with it. And I, you know, mentioned to my wife, you know, we have that uh, wine from Argentina, that Torantes that's open in the refrigerator. Let's try that. So we pulled out Despivas Torrantes from Argentina, which is... One of the most aromatic white wines you will ever experience in your life. Uh, Tons of citrus, kind of a lemon lime, a lot of floral. And when we matched that wine with the dish, the dish all of a sudden tasted dramatically better. Now I'm getting nuance to it. I'm tasting tarragon and other herbs there that I couldn't pick out at all. The oregano did not seem to be overbearing. And the even the lemony aspects of it fell into line. So it, it is interesting. We often talk about, you know, how they help each other. And sometimes you lose track out of how much a wine can actually help a dish if you kind of uh, get the right one there. I just wanted to talk briefly, because next Monday is Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, about uh, a little story with him in a, uh, a fine wine tasting. There's not much known about his tastes, except for this particular tasting that, that came about in, a, in an unusual way. There was this wine store in Atlanta run by Jim Sanders. Uh, he was one of the first fine wine stores in Atlanta, and he would sometimes do impromptu, occasional wine tastings for some of his customers, You know, sometimes even just two or three people. But Dr. King came in Uh, looking for a bottle of Amontillado sherry to give to a friend of his that uh, he wanted to give to as a gift. And at the same time, though, he saw Mr. Sanders saw him looking longingly, he said, at this very expensive Burgundy. And he asked him if he was interested, and he says, no, he wasn't comfortable spending that amount of money on on wine. He had had a decent amount of wine-drinking experience, though, because when he was in Boston, he had a friend that had a full-blown cellar that often had him over to uh, enjoy fine wine, but he, he liked it and uh, didn't know a lot about it, even though he deeply appreciated it. So, he decided to bring uh, Dr. King back to this little informal tasting that he had going on. The two people were, one, a Pulitzer Prize-winning editor-publisher, Ralph McGill, who was actually a big fan of Dr. King's. And the other was a former governor who was a a militant segregationist and who opposed everything that Dr. King stands for. So it was kind of interesting in that wine brought them together. My God, talk about polar opposites. They shook hands and uh, they both knew each other and decided that, uh, yeah, let, let's try uh, tasting a little wine here. And it turns out that they had so much in common there that it really brought them together. Uh, one of the questions that came up was both Dr. King and the governor said, is there any difference between wines of the same name? So the person that ran the store brought out three sauterans, you know, one a jug, one a medium-bodied one from... Uh, Ohio and the other one a real honest to god saw Terran. and they couldn't believe the difference. Uh, Dr. King mentioned it's like the best cantaloupe you've ever tasted compared to damp pasteboard, <laughs> which said it all. Uh, the wine um, store owner realized what a monumentous occasion this was, and opened the wine that Dr. King was looking at when he first came in, turned out to be a 1957 Latash DRC. One of the best burgundies made, period. To buy that today, you're looking at eight dollars $9,000 a bottle. And again, they were in a total agreement in that they both thought that it was you know, big, rich, and flowery, but it was like satin. And uh, just another example of how wine is kind of a social lubricant and can bring people together. But we now have the new year ahead of us and with all the resolutions going on and all that, um, I hope one of your resolutions is to perhaps get out of your comfort zone and try some wines that you haven't had before. I'm really excited about this upcoming year in the show. it's we have the world of wine at our feet and we're going to be talking about in addition to some of the finest wines in the world a lot of fun affordable wines from throughout the world that are can just be discoveries that uh, can be a ton of fun to experience you know like from spain there's albarino and rioja from argentina there's torrontes and malbec Greece, Moscofilero, Esertico, South Africa. They do a pinotage there that's really very interesting that uh, has its home in South Africa. And Steen, which we know is Chenin Blanc. But man, over there, it can take on qualities that you would normally associate with a great white burgundy. You know, Shiraz from Australia, the Gruner Veltliner from Austria, and and a, a lot of others there. But where I wanted to start tonight, because I thought we'd get back to the classics, is France. Um, France kind of epitomizes the differences between New World and Old World. And, man, in terms of, of the Old World, they are iconic producers of Many, many different styles of wine that have been emulated throughout the world. uh It's, it's, it's just they are kind of the ones to beat. Now, there's a lot of different wine regions there. The Loire, you got the Muscadet, Vouvray, Sancerre is iconic. It, it spawned the whole thing with New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, um, Champagne, best sparkling in the world, Alsace, where they're doing. Things like Pinot Gris and Straminer and Rhone, where they're doing chateauneuf du Pop and Hermitage and all that. Um, Burgundy, where they're making the best Chardonnays uh, and the best Pinot Noirs on the face of the planet there. But the most iconic wine of all and where I wanted to start tonight in the exploration of France is Bordeaux. Bordeaux is the largest fine wine producing region in the world. It produces more wine, believe it or not, than most countries. If you considered it a country, it would fall like at about sixth or seventh in total production. A lot of different producers there. Um, But one of the things that's happening, and we're going to talk about the different regions of Bordeaux and what they're known for and all that. But I think when most people think of Bordeaux, in addition to the dessert wines and a lot of other great, great, great wines, they're thinking red Bordeaux there. And a lot of changes have taken place in that not that long ago, uh, just about 20, 25 years ago, the difference in what you'd pay for the very best, like a first growth, And just one of these normal little, what we refer to as Petit Chateau's, was only about 20, 25% more money. Now, you can buy a really really great, excellent Red Bordeaux for about 50 or under, but the best you're spending thousands of dollars a bottle for. And it's really created this divide that uh, I want to go into just a little bit more in a bit. But Red Bordeaux can be a mystery to many of us. And one of the reasons for that, and it applies to a lot of the other wines of France, is that they use place names instead of labeling things varietally by the grape variety, which we do in the United States. So in other words, where they would say Chateau Latour or Mouton Rothschild, in California, that is the same thing as pretty much saying a Cabernet Sauvignon. Both tend to blend in other grapes, but I just thought that if you made that comparison, that might uh, give us a good starting point uh, to get this whole thing kicked off with. By the way, the California Cabernets really patterned themselves and were trying to be like the great wines of Bordeaux. It's kind of what they wanted to be when they grew up. Man, did they grow up, because with the judgment of Paris in 1976, wow, uh, they showed that they could be the equal of, or pretty close to the equal of, some of the very best Bordeaux. But where I wanted to start the discussion was in a discussion of the different grape varieties that go into Bordeaux, uh, both red and white, and what they add to the blend, and why, why they're so important. The first one is Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, because of the success of Bordeaux, Cabernet Sauvignon is now the most planted grape on earth. That's pretty amazing. They're literally growing it everywhere. Um, one of the neat things about it, it, it has the combination of properties that make it capable of producing really complex multi dimensional, deeply colored, tannic, and extremely long-lived wines. Um, They tend, unlike other grapes, to be identifiable as Cabernet, regardless of where they're grown. And it has to do a lot with the kind of shape of the berry itself and some of the things that are going on within that grape. Uh, Flavor-wise, it tends, especially in Bordeaux, to have flavors of kind of black currant or cassis, but it's really the structure of the wine that's kind of most recognizable out there. It's a pretty small berry. It's a small grape with really thick skins. Now, the skins give deep color and flavor, so that adds a lot, and the uh, seeds or pips are larger in that small berry than they are in many bigger berries, so they give you a lot of tannin there, which is an antioxidant that allows for the wine to age for years and years and years. Now, it's resistant to a lot of vineyard diseases, but in Bordeaux, and this is a bit of a problem, and this is one of the reasons why they're so into blending in Bordeaux, is that it's very late ripening, so it needs kind of a relatively warm area to grow in and if it doesn't fully ripen it can really be bitter and harsh you can have these uh, green vegetal not in a good way flavors which is one of the reasons that they blend it with other grapes some earlier ripening grapes like Merlot and Cabernet Franc so that if the Bordeaux doesn't if the excuse me if the um, Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't fully ripe. And they have other grapes that they can blend into it to soften it. And maybe just take the grapes that they were able to get ripe in a year like that. But that's why they limit it typically to about 70, uh, 75% or, or so there. The other thing that I found that makes this uh, grape a little bit different than it does in other areas of the world and makes it stand out and I really got this from doing a lot of blind tasting, is when it's from the left bank of Bordeaux, and I'm going to talk about what that means in just a little bit, it really has this interesting pronounced black olive note. I rarely get out of Cabernet-grown anywhere else. But it does have a ton of structure to the point where it kind of needs bottle age. Now, the next grape I'm going to talk about is Merlot. And that's very, very widely planted as well. Um, it tends to be a great partner for the Cabernet because it's kind of fleshier and it's kind of plumper, plumper and fruitier, and uh, it helps to soften out the Cab. So it makes it drinkable a little earlier on. It's uh, it's funny. It's not so much for the the fruit flavor characteristics that they're blending in the merlot, but it's for the texture because again, it it kind of smooths out those ripe tannins and it ripens a lot sooner. So that if there's trouble because Bordeaux's on the edge of getting the grapes totally ripe, um, you can get it fully ripened much easier and increase the percentage of it in the blend, which you are allowed to do there. It really runs uh, very, very well in what's called the right bank, which again, we'll be getting to when we talk about the districts where the soils are damp and cool in Saint-Emilion and Pomerol. So to finish off the red grapes, the third major one is Cabernet Franc. It is kind of interesting. I've heard it described as kind of a midway point between Cabernet and Merlot. It does ripen earlier, like Merlot does. It tends to be a little bit more medium-bodied rather than full-bodied like Merlot. And it does have an immediacy of fruit, but it, it has a bit of structure to it that Merlot doesn't. But the thing here that makes this grape really fascinating is its fragrance. It has kind of a pronounced ripe herbal quality that is just lovely and adds dramatically to the blend. Typically, there'd be about 10% of that, 75% Cab, and maybe around, you know, 15% Merlot or so. Um, going to mention a, a few of the other grapes here. One that's they're not using so much anymore is Malbec. It used to be one of the most popular grapes in all of Bordeaux and one of the most planted, but Phylloxera hit, and they had to replant on American rootstock. That was the only cure for this disease that infected the vineyards. And it did not take well to American rootstock. It was very hard to control yields and just grew out of, you know, so many grapes that it it had no character to it at all. There was a major frost in 56 and it killed off a lot of the vines and they replaced them uh, with Cabernet and uh, Merlot instead of the Malbec. But as everyone knows, it does do extremely well in uh, in Argentina where the high elevation causes it to develop really thick skins, which gives it a a lot more flavor and uh, depth uh, to the wine than normally in Bordeaux. So um, a lot more to get to in Bordeaux. We have a, a few other grapes, Petit Verdot and uh, Carmenere, and others, as long as well as, excuse me, the white grapes. So we're going to be spending some time on that when we next meet. But that's about all we have time for today. I uh, just wanted to mention you've been listening to Wine by Design with Len on 1510 and did want to let you know that there's not a show next week because we're going to be broadcasting the Quincy High School basketball games, which I'm looking forward to, so the next show will be in two weeks. Till then, all the best in wine and life.